Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Amen, amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you this morning for your rich presence among us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who gave his life that we might live, that we might have abundant life forevermore. And oh God, we thank you and we praise you. We lift up your name this morning. It's been good to be here and to celebrate you and to demonstrate our great love for you and to acknowledge with one another your grace in our lives and to spur one another on to love and good works, to encourage each other in the things of God and the truth of God's word. Oh, Father, we thank you now as we take time to open up your word and turn our attention to the things uh, that you have uh, spoken to us. I pray, Father, that our hearts might be inclined to listen and open up and be willing, Father, to, uh, to uh, apply uh, the things that we hear, uh, that we might uh, be your faithful servants, not hearers only of the word of God, but doers of the word of God. I pray and ask you, uh, and I ask you this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, I um, would like to address three questions this morning with you, and they are fairly weighty questions. Why is our world in such a mess? How do most people respond? And what is our message to a world of hurt? These three questions I want to address with you in a message entitled, How Then Can We Live? Years ago when I lived in Chatham, there were many skirmishes between the Auto Workers Union and a particular truck assembly plant that was really the heartbeat of the economy of Chatham, uh, Navistar. It was an assembly plant for international trucks. And for a number of years, there was constant back and forth between the union and the uh, ownership of Navistar uh, labor discontent. Eventually, it came to the point where the owners of the International Trucks Assembly Plant stated to the Auto Workers Union that if you push us any further in, in, in wage demands, we will remove the plant and take it to Mexico. Well, the Auto Worker Union did not heed that warning and pushed and pushed and even while the company was unbolting the machines from the floor of the Navistar assembly plant and loading them on flatbed trucks, the workers were saying, they're just blowing smoke. They're just bluffing. Needless to say, the, what GM is to Oshawa, Navistar was to Chatham. Needless to say, Navistar moved to Mexico and gutted the economy of Chatham. I really believe that that is an illustration of the state of our world. God is pulling back in various regions his restraint on evil to seek to bring a wake-up call to our world that there is a day set for judgment 
and our world is claiming God is just blowing smoke. He doesn't really mean what he says. Would you turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 33? As we attempt to answer the questions, I believe that our world is in a mess in a nutshell because God is sounding a trumpet to get people's attention. How do most people respond? Our response in the world is he's just blowing smoke. This will all pass over. It always does. And what is our message to a world of hurt? What I really want to address as the punchline today is can we actually use these troubled times to go fishing for souls? And I would suggest to you that there has never been a greater strategic moment than right now to reach out with the message of God's love. In Ezekiel chapter 33, and I want to um, address your attention to starting at verse 21, this is a text that tells us um, about another time when God was bringing judgment upon a a locality to uh, try and wake people up to an awareness that there is a God in heaven. He has set a day for ultimate judgment, and now is the day to repent, to turn to God. And uh, in fact, we, we can get very precise with this particular text because it gives us the date, January 8, 585 B.C. Now you read it as in the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month on the 5th day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen. Jerusalem is that city. The city where God had placed his name The city that they did not believe could fall. Surely God would never allow Jerusalem to fall. That's the city that has his name. Now the evening before the man arrived, the hand of the Lord was upon me. Now Ezekiel the prophet had been struck mute for quite some time. And he opened my mouth before the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened and I was no longer silent. Then the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, the people living in those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he possessed the land, but we are many. Surely the land has been given to us as our possession. Therefore say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Since you eat meat with the blood still in it and look to your idols and shed blood, should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword, you do detestable things, and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Should you then possess the land? Say this to them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. As surely as I live, those who are left in the ruins will fall by the sword. Those out in the country I will give to the wild animals uh, to be devoured, and those in the strongholds and caves will die of a plague. I will make the land a desolate waste. And her proud strength will come to an end, and the mountains of Israel will become desolate so that no one will cross them. Then they will know that I am the Lord, when I have made the land a desolate waste because of all the detestable things they have done. Cause and effect. So what is going on in our world? Ezekiel 33 is really a historic backdrop Um, attention grabber for us that is a milestone uh, example of what God is is up to so what is going on in in order for us to understand we need to take a 
historic tour of God's vision for the world, and I hope uh, for those of you who can't stand history, you'll be okay with this for a few moments. If we don't establish this backdrop, if we don't, if we don't bring you into an awareness of God's vision for the world, you're never going to understand the reality of what's going on. CNN, BBC, Fox News, CBC miss the reality of our global situation. No matter how many interviews they partake in, unless they interview someone who brings a biblical perspective, you're being misguided. You're not being told what's really happening in our world, why our world is in such a mess. It goes far deeper than the interviews you're hearing on television. And God has not left the world to wonder what he's up to. He is loosing international stabilizing forces by withdrawing restraints of evil. He is literally unleashing the hounds of hell, and here's why. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 19, God has set this as the vision of reality, the vision for the world. I have set before you. God speaks to all the peoples of the world. He's proclaiming this message to all the peoples of the world. I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. And effectively, he has set before the world loyalty to God over against disobedience to God. And sadly, the vast majority of our world has opted for disobedience toward God. Now, the vision God has for the world has been laid out by four different agreements or covenants that God has made with people. And the first, of course, that we encounter the first major covenant, first major agreement we, we uh, encounter in the Word of God is the Abrahamic covenant, whereby God set out to bless the world through one man, Abraham. And God promised that through his offspring, all the nations would be blessed. Through his singular seed, not multiple seed, but singular seed, ultimately culminating in the Lord Jesus Christ. Through that one man, all the world would be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. God also, and, and, and that's a call to turn to God. God made a second agreement with the peoples of the world called the Mosaic Covenant, which is really the constitution of God. If you understand about the patriation of constitutions in countries... The Mosaic Covenant is God's constitution patriated on the world. And it is the law of God that was given to Moses how to live to daily please God. This has been given to us. In other words, to turn to the ways of God. God followed this up with a, a third covenant called the Davidic Covenant which is outlining God's kingdom, God's eternal kingdom, God's promise that there would always be an offspring of David, King David, 
that would occupy the throne of the universe for all eternity. This is a call to turn to his righteous kingdom and his forever Davidic king, of course, again being Jesus Christ. Now, God offered to the world a fourth covenant called the New Covenant. The New Covenant is the Mosaic Covenant or the Constitution of God moving into our lives where God has actually promised by covenant, by agreement, to move the law into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This is the covenant by which we live. This is the new and better covenant, the promised better covenant that God promised in the book of Jeremiah through the prophet Jeremiah. I will write the law in their hearts. They will all know me, accompanied by the coming of Messiah. And, and so peace with God was and is on the basis of the new covenant in his blood. When we celebrate communion, when we celebrate the Lord's table, we are celebrating the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins that we might have a relationship with God. This is the new covenant. And so peace with God cannot be had outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you're trying to understand the situation of the world, in particular, in the state of current ethnic Israel, Israel cannot have peace with God unless they kiss the sun, as the psalmist wrote. This is not far from the scriptures, their Old Testament scriptures. In Psalm chapter 2, Verse 11, it says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, S-O-N, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I can tell you that the John Haggies and the Glenn Becks of this world are not helping theologically to help Israel to understand its plight. Unless they turn to Jesus Christ for salvation, their land will continue to be under turmoil. The history of Israel is a history of false shepherds who don't tell the truth. And they've lost the land and continue to jeopardize because they believe that their ancestry alone will entitle them to the land. That's what the prophet Ezekiel points out is a very frustrating thing for God. In, in verse 30, 24 of 33, Son of man, the people living in those ruins in the land of Israel, saying, Abraham was only one man, yet we possess the land, but we are many. Surely the land has been given to us as our possession. And that's the call on CNN and on BBC and on Fox News and on CBC. But the reality of the universe and what's happening in our world cannot be understood outside of these four covenants. The wages of sin is death. And God the Father sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the cross. Because sin is so heinous 
and so separates us from the living God that his son had to die. And the world basically says God is just blowing smoke. The cross is ridiculous. So we weep for a world that is choosing death when they could have life. And so these are warning noises of God's approval, disapproval. What's happening in our world? These are warning noises of God's disapproval with people who have ignored his covenantal relationship with the human race, particularly the new covenant. And um, he, God has stated that he will bring upon the world, and it's been a consistent pattern of God, war, predators, and plagues. What do you see around you? Wars, murderers, and plagues. That's what's happening to our world. It's an earnest, if you understand what that means, it's a, a foretaste, a forerunner, a harbinger of the final judgment of God. God has stated throughout the scriptures, he has set a day for final judgment. And he has simply removed his restraining hand on wickedness in certain pockets of the world and in certain different ways. His judgment is, as we talked about weeks ago, his judgment is being demonstrated in our own city. If God were to pull back all of his restraint on the heinous wickedness and evil that is in our world, none of us this morning would be alive. Do we realize that? Do we understand that the strategic plan for the universe of Satan is to kill, steal, and destroy? If Satan were allowed to, by the removal of the restraining powerful hand of a sovereign God to unleash his strategic plan on the universe, we would all be dead. Steal, kill, destroy. And God is getting the attention of our world if we're willing to pay attention through this withdrawal of restraint to a limited degree so that stealing, killing, and destroying is happening in, before your very eyes across the globe today. It's horribly tragic. I don't know about you, but I, I, I watch and I'm just, I'm just overcome emotionally for these families that are being devastated and the children that are being killed and the horrible things that are happening. And yes, righteous people are being caught in the crosshairs of tragedy. It's true. But the good news is that those who are righteous, who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, have a very, very soft landing. A very soft landing. Into the presence of God. Now, while the pieces of our world are being unbolted and loaded into a flatbed to destruction, the world is saying God is just blowing smoke. He doesn't really mean what he says. 
And here's why I say that. It's in the text here, in the prophecy of Ezekiel. The city has fallen. Jerusalem, it says, the city has fallen. And while they are calling out to each other, the city has fallen, they're saying, ah, but Abraham was one man and he gave the land, so we are many, God's giving us the land. They were ignoring this. They were thinking, this is not real. It's not really happening. It's not going to happen. God's not going to let this happen. It was happening. They were unbolting the machines in Jerusalem, putting on a flatbed truck. And driving them into Nebuchadnezzar's palace. So how do most people respond in times of judgment and social upheaval? Do they call for mercy? Do they repent? Do they reform? I, I want to share with you, um, I didn't actually count them, but uh, seven, seven different ways people respond from this text. I'm going to look at them very quickly with you. Look at verse 12, for instance. Therefore, son of man, say to your countrymen, the righteousness of the righteous man will not save him when he disobeys. They continue their wickedness, thinking that somehow some past charitable good thing they did is going to, be, is going to take care of them and God will overlook it. No, no. The, the, the righteousness that was done by someone will not save them when they disobey. Now, I don't want to take a lot of time here, but um, some of you are looking at me with puzzled looks saying, wait a second, does that mean that righteous people, people of God, can lose their faith and can be ultimately end up in eternal hell? No. No, that's not what I'm saying, and that's not what the Bible teaches. But what the Bible always teaches is the truth of your hold on a legitimate salvation is based on how you live, not on what you say. It's not whether or not you have salvation by the way you're living. It's whether or not you ever had it. That's the issue. And behavior always, always brings, lifestyle always brings and asks the question, did you have salvation in the first place? Because if you don't have genuine faith in God's mercy and his love and his compassion and his care and his trust, then maybe you didn't have it in the first place. So people continue in wickedness. Wicked people continue in wickedness, even if they have here and there uh, attempted to offset their wickedness with a righteous effort. In verse 13, it says this, this, if I tell the righteous man that he will surely live, but then he trusts in his righteousness and does evil, none of the righteous things he has done will be remembered. What do people do in times of trouble? They trust in their own righteousness. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who are self-righteous and those who rely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Your self-righteousness can't save you. It is perceived by God as filthy rags. Only the righteousness of Christ can save you. Only as you are viewed in Christ Jesus and then viewed by God the Father as 100% perfect in Christ because he's a holy God. And so the continuation, uh, you, can, you can heap charity upon charity and good acts upon good acts and good works upon good works. Your self-righteousness, the righteousness that you generate cannot save you. 
only as you rely on the Lord Jesus Christ and put your faith in him and trust in him and receive his righteousness will you be saved. The third way people um, tend to approach this is they blame their ancestors. If you turn back a few pages in Ezekiel to Ezekiel 18, you will notice in the first four verses, God is had enough of his people using pop cultural psychology and statements to claim his character, to, to depict his character. The word of the Lord came to me, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, this is a proverb that is maybe not understandable by you. Have you ever eaten sour, maybe sour cherries, sour, you know how your teeth kind of get feeling strange? Well, these people were saying, if we were to eat sour cherries, our kids' teeth would feel strange. In other words, our kids are bearing the responsibility for our eating of the sour cherry, metaphorically. In, in other words, they were saying that our sin is going to be, is going to be, the judgment's going to be upon our children. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel, for every living soul belongs to me, the father as well as the son, both alike belong to me, and listen to this, Please, please listen. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Once and for all, let's understand that Uncle Barney's Ouija board has not brought judgment upon your life. You don't, we, we are not to blame our ancestors for the the uh, discipline that's come upon our lives. If we are being disciplined, it's because of our own sin. It's because of our own failure to God. That's what he says in Ezekiel 33. You're talking about, about Abraham and having the land. And, and God says, you're the ones who are eating meat with, a, with blood still in it. You're the ones who are looking to your idols and shedding blood. You're the ones who are sleeping with your neighbor's wife. It's not about your ancestors. We are not paying for our ancestral curses. There's not unfinished business in your wicked family that you have to worry about. Stop this foolishness, God says. The soul who sins is the one who will die. It's misrepresenting the nature and fairness of God, is what he says. I don't punish children for the sin of their father. I punish the children for their own sin. And likewise, I don't punish the father for the sin of the son. You can read further in Ezekiel chapter 18. You can also read in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verse 29 to 30. It's another way of deflecting responsibility from ourselves. You are not one bit responsible for anything in your family tree. So don't waste any time, not a second of your life dealing with it. There's a fourth uh, decision that people take when God's judgment is coming upon. In verse 17, yet your countrymen say, the way of the Lord is not just. 
but it is their way that is not just, God says. Listen, if you can't blame your ancestors, blame God. Blame God for being unjust. As people look around, they, 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 they state, in, in other words, they go on and they say, because of the way God explains this, if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil, he'll die for it. But if a wicked man turns away from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he will live for doing so. God says, what's unfair about that? But they're making the claim, oh, you know, you are, you're giving special favoritism to righteous people and you're coming down hard on sinners and sinful people in particular. God is saying, no, the, uh, the righteous, if they continue on in their righteousness, they'll be fine. If they don't, I'm going to discipline them. The wicked, likewise, if they continue in wickedness, I'll discipline them. If they turn from their wickedness, I'll forgive them. What's unfair about that? The um, fifth choice that people often make is to believe that their heritage grants them immunity. We've talked a lot about that already. I don't need to talk more about it, but that's the position basically that modern ethnic antichrist Israel is taking, presuming on God. Now, by the way, I want to be careful here because, uh, um, you know, when, when, you, uh, when you become uh, an international statesman for, uh, for political affairs around the world, you better be careful when you start talking about Israel. Let me make myself abundantly clear. I fully believe that God has a future for Israel, a glorious future, a future of great turning to Christ by the Jewish people. That is yet to come. I believe that wholeheartedly. But let's be, let's be 100% clear that, lost, that, that people who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, no matter what race they are, are lost. No matter what ethnicity you have, you are lost. There, there's no special race. There's no special international state if you decline the saving, transforming work of Jesus Christ. I believe, though, in a special way that God is going to preserve Israel's history because there's coming a great turning to, to God. I, I fully believe that. But let's understand the situation here. The land is deeded to Israel not by race but by faith. Abraham, the Apostle Paul writes, who is a, was a Jew, by the way, Abraham is the father of people by faith, of people of faith of all who believe, Romans 4.11. Having peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. He makes this completely clear. The sixth uh, approach of people is to treat the preacher as entertainment. Am I entertaining you this morning? I hope not. Uh, look what it says here in verse 30. Verse 32, as for you, son of man, your countrymen are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do, and they sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. You are just entertainment, buddy. You are just amusement. Do you understand what amusement means? Muse is to think. 
ah in front of it means you don't think. That's not what should be happening here this morning. We need to be thinking. We need to be awake. This is not entertainment. What do you do with entertainers? You ignore them. They entertain you, but you don't take them seriously. I hope I'm not an entertainer. This is the word of God. God's not bringing you entertainment. He's not bringing you amusement. This is serious business. This, the, the, the preacher is a town crier from heaven. Hear ye, hear ye, what the king of the universe is saying to you. These are serious words of the king of, of glory that are being presented to you. They were playing games with God. While Jerusalem was burning and being carried away and things were being unbolted from the floor, they were entertained, amused, playing games with God, not wanting to turn from their idols, the things they were depending on and relying on instead of God. And God was giving them an object lesson of how good are those idols that you've been relying on? How trustworthy are they? How reliable have they become for your life? Can they stop the invading forces that are coming upon you? Can they stop the predators that are killing you? Can they stop the plagues that are taking you down? The final uh, thing that I see here of the ways that people respond to the judgment of God is to exercise despair and give up to their unhappy circumstances. I see this in the church of Jesus Christ way too much. Verse 10, son of man, say to the house of Israel, this is what you are saying. This is what you are saying. This is what the unfaithful people are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? We're too far gone. The weight is too great. Lord, you've allowed so much sin to come into my life. I, I've given up a long time ago. The, the hope of me becoming somehow the apple of your eye in righteousness is just not possible. You've let this come upon me. This is my fate. This is my lot in life. I'm weighed down. It's too much work. I can't reform. And we have Christians who are living defeated lives with the weight of sin upon them, in despair saying, I've given up. It's too great. The recovery is too costly. It'll require too much sacrifice. And who cares? Because God is just blowing smoke. So what is our message to this world of distress? Who are asking the question, how then can we live? Actually, that word could, have, could be translated as legitimately, how then can we come to life? Here's the truth we have to offer. Look at verse 11. This is the glorious epicenter of this text. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Would you please hear this? But rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn! 
Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? This is the heart of our God. He does not lightly withdraw his restraining hand and allow wickedness to have a season of victory. Our God takes no pleasure or delight in the death of the wicked, but that they might turn to him, repent, literally the word repent, that they might turn from going in this direction and turn to the living God to live, to choose life. The, the strategic plan of the universe that God has put in place is I have, sh- I have set before you the ways of life and death. Choose life. The glorious message here is that within, the, the, within every hearer's uh, atmosphere, that person can respond to the, to the opportunity to hear God's word and respond to it, to turn to him. Nobody in this room is too far gone from God. If you can hear the word of God, if you can listen to what he is saying, then you can turn. His, his heart is out to you. He is giving you this message. He's putting these warnings all around, and he's saying to you, turn, turn, choose life. Why would you die? Why will you choose death? So who are we? What is our role in all of this? What's our message? Did you notice in the early part of the chapter, maybe not, verse 7, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel, so so hear the word I speak and and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways, that wicked man will die for his ways, for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways and he does not do so, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. We are watchmen. We turn on the news and we watch and we see. And we see what's coming. We see what's happening. We know what is happening in the world. I've just told you what is happening in the world. I I believe 100% Whatever you've heard on CNN, BBC, whatever, I'm telling you, I believe that I've 100% told you what's happening in the world. That's the truth. And we have been given a responsibility in light of what we see. We see the plagues and the wars and the predators, and we know what's happening. And we are called to sound the trumpet to call people to turn to a merciful, forgiving God. We are in a strategic moment of opportunity when people are talking, talking about what's going on. They'll ask you, what is going on in our world? You go to work, what is going on in our world? You know what's going on in our world. God has made you a wartime watcher. Look at the start of the chapter here, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your countrymen and say to them, when I bring the sword against the land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears that trumpet 
but does not take warning and the sword comes and takes his life, his blood will be on his own head. Since he heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning, his blood will be on his own head. If he had taken warning, he would have saved himself. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes the life of one of them, that man will be taken away because of his sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for his blood. You are on notice by God. You know what's happening. And we are called to warn our people of the coming judgment of God ultimately. These are harbingers of God's final judgment when there will be no more opportunity. So wartime watchers call the lost to repentance from unrighteousness. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. This is our message. Save yourself. Run to Christ. He'll save you. This is what we do. This is why we have prayer stations in Nanquan. This is why we're going outside. This is why we're, we're putting kids on a plane and sending them to Bolivia. This is what we do. We tell people that they can come to Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Do we not realize that God is writing right now the eternal checks on everybody? C-H-E-Q-U-E, the eternal checks. And if he signs that check... Before you have responded to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, your wages are eternal death. So God says, turn, choose life while you may. Why would you choose death? I'm telling you, I'm sending the watchman, I'm sending the message. Turn from this, turn to God. To those who are spiritually apathetic, to authentic righteousness, to the cold, to those who have grown cold toward God, our call to them is wake up and turn, return to God. You who are backslidden, you who have fallen away, you who are going in the opposite direction, you who are choosing idols over God, you who know better, look at what's happening around us, turn to God, turn to God with a renewed passion, be apathetic no longer. Live authentic righteousness. Listen to the writer of what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy. When all these blessings and curses, verse chapter 30, I have set before you, come upon you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where you have scattered. And on and on he goes. He will return to you. Your, the promises that he has offered to you. And then finally, to rescue those from the coming judgment of a holy God. To the skeptical, to the oblivious, to those who are in denial, there is coming a judgment. Chapter 34 on tells of the glorious triumph ultimately of God. If you want to read some real exciting stuff, just keep reading Ezekiel. You'll see God's great victory over the nations and ultimately his eternal glory displayed forever and ever. That's the good news. 
In the, Old, in the New Testament, it says in Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 27, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. In chapter 10, verses 26 to 27, it says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. But the truth of this is, back to chapter 9, Christ was sacrificed once for all to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to all of those who are waiting for him. Beloved, listen. God does not want people to perish. He's calling people to turn to life. Life in Christ. That's our message as wartime watchers. Because we're in a war of the righteousness of God versus the wickedness of satanic forces. And we know the truth. And it's up to us to tell it. Our Father and our God this morning, I pray that you would embed in our consciousness, in our hearts, in our very fabric of who we are, the truths that have been presented from your word. And Lord, I pray that we would go out from here with a resolve and a commission to be wartime watchers and to call people to turn to God. He takes no pleasure in the death of wicked people, but rather patiently holding, restraining back wickedness that people might not perish because he loves people and wants them to turn and choose life, life in Christ. Oh, God, I pray that we would be bold in the proclaiming of that message in every opportunity that is granted to us in light of this strategic moment when the world is coming unglued. Oh, God, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the midst of all of this pain and suffering and challenge in our world today, there is an amazing opportunity for God's people. This is a strategic time for us to have serious conversations with people. And, and can you imagine, just think about this great company of people taking on our responsibility to be wartime watchers and to take these conversations to the community, to take them to your workplaces, to take them to your transportation places, to take them wherever you are in the market and speak boldly for God, that this is a time to call people to repentance, to turn to the living God. Watchmen sound the alarm. They sound the trumpet. This is what God has given us to do. This is, a, this is our opportunity. This is our time. God is firing warning shots. The real end is coming. It could be a week. It could be a thousand years. But it's coming. It's time for us to call everybody in our world, in our sphere, in our sphere of influence, to turn to the living God for life. Let's bow our heads. Is there anybody here this morning that would say, you know, I need to turn to the Lord for life. I have been choosing death. Would you pray for me, Pastor? Would you slip up your hand wherever you are? Yes. Anybody else? 
Anyone else somewhere in this building? I've been choosing death, destruction. I've been choosing idolatry. I've been choosing uh, against God, and I need to choose for him. Yes, another. Anybody else? Our Father and our God, you know the hearts of the people you've assembled in this building this morning. Some of us, Lord, are called to be bold, more bold in our watchman responsibilities. I pray that that would be so by the power of your Holy Spirit. Some of us have been ignoring your warning call. You've been sounding the alarm in their lives, but they're ignoring it. Oh God, I pray that, that the fight and the battle of resistance would end. Choose life. Turn to God. Some this morning have indicated that they've been choosing death and destruction instead of life in Christ. Lord, thank you for that. At every level, you are working in our lives, and I pray, Father, that we would not take this sermon as entertainment or amusement, for it is anything but that, but that we would take it as the truth, as a proclamation delivered to this congregation from the Lord of heaven, because it's his word. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.